The Culture Pop Podcast is brought to you by the law offices of Jacob Imrani. Accident or injury, call Jacob Imrani, call Jacob. Hey, it's Mace. If you or a friend or loved one is injured in an accident, the first person you should call is my friend Jacob. When I did this, Jacob was great. He helped me by talking through the next steps, which really put my mind at ease. When you're injured in an accident, you got to have an expert. That's why you call Jacob, just like I did. Call Jacob, 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. Or visit calljacob.com. Call Jacob. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinske. Sue, what's up? What's up? It's hot. Yeah, it it's is hot. so damn hot. Yeah, I, I saw today that, and I originally doubted this, it was 152 degrees at the airport in Tehran. Can you imagine 152 degrees? How does anybody even survive so? Like, you, how do I mean, you even, I think how you, do you breathe? You walk outside, you must. I mean, I I know technically it's not the boiling point, but I mean, it must feel like you're boiling. And people are wearing long sleeves. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. They wear a lot Iran. of garb in Tehran. There is. There is a lot. Uh, so I want to make sure everybody knows. Uh, first of all. You can uh, join our Culture Pop community on Twitter. We've been in there. We've been talking about the Emmy nominations. Just search communities for Culture Pop Podcast, and we will pop right up. Uh, also, uh, we are still, um, we have t-shirts. I forget when this is actually going to be on, but we've got Culture Pop t-shirts. Sue, I've got you a Culture Pop hoodie that I will send to you. Great. I can't wait. Um, and what we're hoping you will do, because we are building the show and we're trying to grow the show, and the more comments and likes and five-star reviews we get, the better it is for our standings uh, with uh, Apple and with Spotify and with YouTube and all that stuff. So if you leave a comment and a review on any of our platforms, particularly Apple and YouTube, uh, and send us an email. Uh, and let us know what you did and what you post. We will send you uh, an official Culture Pop Podcast t-shirt. So after you post, make sure you email us, maceandsue at gmail.com, maceandsue at gmail.com, and we will make sure to uh, get you a t-shirt. Now, uh, is, that an, is that an ampersand? No, it is not an ampersand. Okay. That's a very good question, though. Okay. I don't think you can have an ampersand in the email address, if I'm not mistaken. But no? okay. Yeah, so it's no ampersand, spell out and. Um, I am so excited for football season. Oh man, this is my time. Yeah, it just for me, life is just better during NFL season. Every Sunday, week to week, with my favorite team, the Los Angeles Rams, and I'm really excited today uh, because we are joined by the chief operating officer of the Los Angeles Rams. Kevin Demoff. Kevin, thanks a lot for doing this. My pleasure. What an honor to, to join. So this is a highlight of my week so far. Oh, nice. Nice. Well, this interview is going to be a little bit different from the stuff we do on the radio. I kind of want to figure out who you are, show, follow your history, that kind of stuff, if that's cool. We'll, we'll find out if it's cool. I guess we'll just we'll roll along. And if there are parts of my history I want to delete or I don't think are cool, I'll just forget about them. Hey, I don't I don't blame you. I will do the same about my uh, life and career. So your dad is legendary super agent Marvin Demoff. And as a kid, when did you first realize that your dad had this really cool job, this great way of making a living? Uh, I, I would say probably the first time I actually really remember it was 
you know, was now become infamous, the 1983 draft, um, NFL draft when, you know, the Elway to Marino 30 for 30, I think did a great job of capturing that, but yeah, that was the le- legendary NFL quarterback draft, right? I think five or six, you know, Hall of, you know, drafts, three Hall of Famers, you know, but I remember you, know, you have to go way back in time to the early eighties when the draft was on Thursday mornings, only hmm. on ESPN. It was at 8 a.m. start. So on the West Coast, it was a 5 a.m. start. Oof. And so we would get together in our, our family den in our pajamas with, you know, kind of bagels and donuts and whatever you could have. And we'd watch the draft. And I remember, though, that draft, you know, not knowing everything that was going on, too young to understand the trade machinations and what's going on with Elway and Marino. <laughs> uh, but the number two, I think it was the number two or three pick, Kurt Warner, the running back. Yeah. Uh, was was actually at our house for the draft. Oh, wow. So, Kurt Warner from Penn State, I think, Penn right? State. So he gets drafted. He's all excited. And he and I go to the backyard. We start shooting baskets. And, and I remember what I loved about the draft when I was a kid was I didn't have to go to school until the first round ended. So that was always <laughs> like the highlight. So you always, you wanted as many trades, people to take as long as possible, you know, so that, you know, it was 10 o'clock, five, six hour first round would be fantastic. Um, you know, but I, I remember kind of you're sitting there and you're watching the draft. These guys are getting drafted. They're in your house. They're shooting hoops with you. And, you know, that was the moment you kind of realized maybe your your experience was a little bit different. And look, growing up in Los Angeles, there are plenty of people who had ties to the entertainment world, of which we had none. But you all of a sudden realized that you, know, you had sports figures who were part of your life that probably weren't the same as everybody else. So I read that when you were a kid. You used to listen in to your father's business calls. First of all, I want to know if he knew that you were doing that. Okay. But I want to know, looking back on those conversations that he had, what, what was the takeaway? And, and how did that help you maybe later on when it became your career? So the two things on listening in the first was, you know, at first I used to kind of sit in their bedroom and the end of the bed and just listen to his side of the conversation. And so that takeaway was always what led to, I think my career was, I wonder what the other side of the conversation looks like, right? Like I, I understand his perspective, his viewpoint. I'm curious what's being said, you know, very much on the other side. Um, although we were probably one of the first houses then we've got multiple phone lines. We had fax machines, we had everything. So at one point we got multiple phone lines. My parents decided it would be a good idea for my dad and I to share a line. Um, <laughs> so that's when I could actually just pick up the phone and listen and start to hear what people said. But very early on, for the most part, I would just sit in the room and imagine the other part of the conversation. And then he would hang up and I kind of ask about, you know, the, the other side of, of the conversation. So I think that's where the curiosity of switching sides probably came from. And then what was your big <laughs> takeaway? What did, did you get your, uh, what did you pull from your dad's conversations? Yeah, look, I, I always thought the the most interesting thing about my dad's conversations, which is something we've tried to live to later on in life, is that if he had, you know, the people who worked at the teams were his close friends in the NFL. He hmm. wasn't close with other agents. I mean, it's a very competitive, different business, but like he had great relationships with people at the teams. And you started to realize like that was how you could be most effective, both on, on the team side and the agent side, is you could build those relationships across the aisle basically where you could have trust and and respect and true friendship even at times you you would go head to head Hmm. so did you know as a kid 
when all this is going on? Did you say, I'm, I'm going to work in sports. I, I'm going to do something in sports. You know, I, I didn't. Um, probably looking back, I should have. Uh, although, to be fair, not to, you know, make you feel threatened, Steve. I really want to be a broadcaster. Yeah, you were an intern on Mason in Ireland at one point, right? I, I was, and I, I, I was on originally, well, fast forward, I was on the Rick Short, Schwartz show. Um, I sure. have a hot dog on a stick at the Fallbrook Mall. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, that that's uh, part part of my my life. But uh, when I was growing up, I used to go to base, you know, baseball games, basketball games, football games, and I would take a pen and pretend I was doing the play-by-play you know, or the color. So I always imagined if I got into sports, it would be, you know, as a broadcaster, I never really wanted to get into sports kind of on the team side. And my dad was pretty adamant to me that the agent business was not a good one uh, for someone to come join. Uh, So I I always thought it would be broadcaster TV and, you know, lo and behold, but I, you know, someone who started playing fantasy football at the age of seven in, you know, 1984 (laughs) and who, uh, he used to do mock drafts, I think, for the NFL starting like age eight or nine. Wow. You know, pretty, pretty early on, you know, way ahead of the, you know, way before the draft was what it was now. But, you know, and then, you know, I remember, you know, but probably where I knew I had the bug um, and also where I learned my dad was a great negotiator was I think when I was seven or eight, I was in a college bowl pool with him where you pick circle the winners. Um, and he had me fill it out and I filled it out. And I remember, uh, Whatever the results of the Cherry Bowl, which used to be played in New Jersey, were, yeah. um, he had put the wrong team down for me. And as a result, I was going to win the pool and win like $1,500. And instead, I came in second and got nothing. And he said to make it up for me, he would take me out to five lunches. Um, huh. So they pretend. And at the time, I th- remember thinking, like, well, that's pretty cool. Like, it's a good second place. And by the fifth lunch, I'm like, you know, I think I got screwed here. You know, like, <laughs> these lunches are not $300 a piece. You know, we're going to Carney's, which is great. I'm happy. But, you know, I feel like maybe the negotiator took advantage of his son. But that's, you know, that's when you knew you have the bug. When you're doing college football bowl pools at seven, mock drafts at eight, that, that's when you know. You know, your your rise started at a very, very young age. So at like at 23, you were uh, on, you were doing uh, you know, on the personnel side of arena football with the Los Angeles um, Avengers. Um I, I just think of, of, you know, when I was 23, I was, I was starting out as a stand-up comic in New York, hoping to get on stage before three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> that was my life, you know? So I wanted to know how, in, how important was it to, was that job for preparing you to get a job in the NFL? Well, to be clear, being in the Arena Football League is like being a stand-up comic at 3 a.m., right? I mean, it's basically, <laughs> you know, like, you have to remember, like, Glory was not, you know, was not that way. But uh, I would say it's the number one thing that prepared. It basically, A, made me want to do it. Uh, and B, was the preparation. You know, when I look back at my time with the Avengers, um, basically everything you do now, you did then. Just with nobody paid attention. It was a lot more, you know, a lot fewer zeros on the contracts. And actually... You know, really the one difference at that point, we, we kind of changed it. Most of the players didn't have agents. So you'd have to go negotiate with them face to face, you know, which, which is a tough thing to do, you know, from a management perspective. You know, I remember walking in, uh, we had one player who made $27,000 and, you know, salary cap was coming to the arena football league for the first time when I joined. And so we, we really need him to go to like 25,000. And, 
you know, which $2,000 in the off, the salary cap of the team was probably, you know, $600,000. So every, every bit counts. And so I, I go to his apartment, he opens up the door with his wife and their four kids. And I'm like, I, I can't do this. You know, like, never mind. I'll find the money somewhere else. And they're like, what do you want to talk about? I'm like, I just want to come check in on you and see, see how you're doing. But, uh, you know, I remember three games into my first season, you know, Casey Wasserman, who was our owner, and he basically, he says, I think we need to make a head coaching change, which we did. Um, you know, so then you had to learn how to make a head coaching change, learn how to search for head coaches. You know, but and you did everything. We made trades. We negotiated contracts. You know, I also picked up Jerry's Deli for lunch every day and drove it over to practice. I took uniforms to be washed. You know, you laid T-shirts on seats. And I, I always believe hmm, something I tell anybody you know, who asks for advice these days, working in the minor leagues and sports is one of the best things you can do because you get so much experience doing everything. And even today, you know, I fortunate enough to, to run a, a much bigger team. There's not a job in this organization that I'm asking someone to do that I probably haven't done myself, hmm. you know, outside of being the coach, you know, you know, or coaching, like everything else that's been done, um, at one point in my career, I did either in the arena league or the NFL. And I always think that that's a little bit, you know, of how you can best relate to your staff, to your people, to grow them. But, you know, minor leagues is such a great place to, you know, learn so many things. No, when we screwed up, nobody paid attention. And, uh, that was awesome. Although what I find very interesting now is, you know, our beat writer at the time for the Avengers. Uh, and the LA Times was Gary Klein, who's now our beat writer. Wow, for the LA Gary Klein. Wow. Yeah. Like you look at the epic, you know, we're always like, who knew? Um, and, but I loved every minute of it, you know, but I remember, you know, what at the very end, you know, we came to the team. They had been there a year before, hadn't done very well. We got better. We made the playoffs a number of years. We revamped everything. Uh, but my last year there, we were playing uh, the Georgia Force in Atlanta who uh, were owned by the Atlanta Falcons. This is the time when a lot of the NFL teams started by the arena teams. And we were probably the two best teams in the league uh, going into that game, probably, I think, both undefeated or one loss. And it was 28 all with like a minute and a half left. We scored a touchdown to go up 35-28. And if you remember the arena league, you could kick the ball off the net for a kickoff, and it was a live ball. We then proceeded to recover four straight kickoffs for touchdowns. We won the game like 70-28. Wow. We're in the locker room after and everybody's celebrating. I'm like, I can't do this anymore. This isn't a real sport. <laughs> like, this was a great game between two teams down to the very end. And like, th this is not the way it, it should have ended. And I, I think that was my epiphany that maybe it was time for a change. So from that point, you make a connection with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And I, at least from what I can s see, your assist, senior assistant was your title, which seems like sort of a a catch-all, what did the senior assistant actually do? So the senior assistant, so the the connection was, the way I actually got the job at the Avengers, you have to go back in time. I was working for an internet company called Broadband Sports, uh, which was way ahead of its time. Great, you know, really interesting company. And it was true boom-bust cycle. You know, I joined in 1999. I was the 30th employee. And when I left to go to the Avengers nine months later, there were 300 employees and it was the number two projected IPO on Wall Street. Nine months later, they were out of business. Oh, wow. So like you got to experience the boom bust. I thankfully I wasn't there for the bust. But uh at the time for the company, we were building one of my jobs was to help build NFL websites. So the team at the time teams didn't have enough websites. 
So we actually built the first Cowboys website, which was one of my first projects. And uh, even now I go surf it every now and then. So it's a lot of some of the architecture, but we then wanted pitching the Raiders and the Packers and the Dolphins and all these people. And when we pitched the Raiders on the website, uh, Bruce Allen at the time was there, basically their general manager, but his title was senior assistant because that's what Al Davis gave him. So Bruce was the one who recommended me to Casey for the arena league. When he left to go to Tampa, uh, he, he basically gave me the chance to, to join him in Tampa, really doing salary cap contracts, kind of assistant GM kind of stuff. Um, and I said, no, I'm going to go to business school for two years. It's like, even better, you can work for me for free for two years or in business school. So I did, which was probably not the smartest decision of my life. Seems uh, to have worked out. It worked out, graduated and joined him. So, you know, as I'm leaving, I'm like, well, what's, you know, what title are we thinking? You know, I'm just trying to think of been in business school, everybody's the cool jobs, lofty titles. And I'm like, what about like director of football strategy? And I remember looking, it's like, well, that will imply people think we didn't have a strategy before. Um, he goes, what about senior assistant? My title in Oakland, then no one will know what you do. And I'm like, sure, great. (laughs) Happy to do it. So that's, um, that's how it came about, but it was really a role kind of on the football administration operations side, doing salary cap contracts, personnel and and all of that. And then after that, and then after that, you went to, um, St. Louis, you went to the, to St. Louis to work for the Rams. Now at 39, you, you were a key player in bringing the Rams to LA when so many people before you failed. What, what was it about you? What did you do that was different than everybody else? Well, I worked for Stan Kroenke. That was the difference of, of what we did. That was everybody else. Uh, you know, without that, that, I mean, that's the driving force. I was fortunate to be part of, part of that group and, and play a role in it. But without his vision for what Hollywood Park could be and bringing the Rams back, you know, it would have suffered the same fate as, as everybody else. I think the only advantage probably I had the time was having grown up in LA, um, having an understanding of, you know, the Rams and Raiders left when I was a senior in high school. I think understanding what NFL football was like in this market was a little bit of a differentiator, probably within the NFL spheres when we were bringing the team back. Um, but also, you know, I think there was this element of, you know, Every proposal, and you could probably go through from Irwindale and the Raiders to the Hacienda and Carson to Farmers Field, they all had one missing component, which was they came from real estate developers or cities or groups that didn't actually own a team. And so truly the difference in the Rams coming back was you for the first time had the team owner and a real estate developer were the same person. Right. So basically you were able to get rid of you know, I was in, in a move back to LA and this was a challenge, you know, three groups, there was, the pie was only large enough to satisfy people. And the groups were, you had either, you had the NFL who was always going to demand a relocation fee. They were always going to get their cut. Then you had the team and ultimately you had the developer of the stadium or the real estate. And truthfully, there probably wasn't enough dollars to go around to satisfy both a team and a real estate developer. And I think if you look at what happened in the city of industry and Carson, even, you know, with AEG and Farmers Field, the the breakdown was always, okay, well, if the real estate developer is taking the risk to build a stadium and paying for that, then they either needed a portion of the team or a significant cut of the revenues. From a team perspective, it was always, well, if we're bringing the team, you don't have anything without us. And I think that gap 
was always the trouble. Where Stan was able to solve that as a preeminent real estate developer and owning a team was, okay, I'm the same person. So therefore, you know, if whatever X percent needs to go to the team and the real estate developer, I'm collecting all of it, even if the divide between real estate and team may not be specific. And so I think that was the game changer for the NFL truly coming back. That and getting a hold of what, you know, I have always believed was long the best site for the NFL. And, and I, I've always, I believed it before the Rams came back and I still do. The only two places that an NFL stadium really belonged in Los Angeles were either Dodger Stadium or Hollywood Park. Everything else probably was not the right fit for a number of different reasons. And, and I think that's what came to fruition. So SoFi Stadium is the greatest stadium I've ever been in. And I've been to seven Olympic games with those amazing stadiums. I mean, SoFi is tops. So how were you involved in the, the sort of development of the project and the design and all that kind of thing? Well, I, you know, I remember, you know, once we acquired the, you know, I would say all 300 acres, it was piecemeal, 60 acres at first, and then 240 acres. Once we had all 300 acres, I remember we did a, there was a conference room in, in Denver where we met with architects and land planners, real estate folks, myself, and kind of, we were all around the table for the first time. And it was like, okay, now what do we do? We have 300 acres. Um, we have the right to leave St. Louis. They had essentially voided our lease. You know, can we actually make this come to fruition? And, you know, the idea was, okay, Los Angeles is the entertainment capital of the world. How do we make it, you know, the greatest sports and entertainment complex that's ever existed? I think Stan was, you know, very clear that his vision was you can't undershoot Los Angeles. This has to be mm. the greatest stadium, you know, to ever exist. And so we all kind of started pulling together you know, ideas and what happened and really HKS for architects who did a fantastic job, you know, took the lead, but a lot of us were basically, well, it has to be, you know, open air. And, you know, I give them a ton of credit. We wanted to host every event under the sun from the Olympics to the world cup, to super bowls, to concerts, but also final fours and Academy awards. And, you know, but we, I remember vividly saying like, we don't want a retractable roof and in Southern California, it makes no sense. Yeah. Like, the building has to be, an open air building that hosts these things. And they came up with the idea of a canopy roof and an open air building, which I think to this day, people still ask me my favorite thing about SoFi. And I'm like, it's an open air building that's completely protected. Right. Right. When you're sitting in your seats, you feel like you're in Southern California, but you never have the, you know, I look at, you know, unfortunately the college football playoff championship where we had torrential amounts of rain record record for an hour, but the game could be played without incident. Right. right. I think like that was the amazing you know, thing. So, you know, our job was to work with the architects and, you know, it was pretty funny for a year. We were all working on this project and before we announced the stadium project and HKS had, you know, this office in Dallas and they had the two main people worked out of a supply closet. Wow. And, you know, nobody really knew, you know, what they were doing in the closet, what was going on. <laughs> it's like you'd come down and you do, you know, this project. But I remember vividly, you know, one of the coolest things we did, you know, the project was we came, you know, at one point we all flew to LA and we, we toured Hollywood Park, about 20 of us, you know, but at the time no one knew who owned the land. All the people who were working on the project knew is, you know, there was a chance for a football stadium. And so, and, and one of the actually design drivers of SoFi Stadium now was we climbed to the top of the grandstand at Hollywood Park. 
We're like, these are unbelievable views. It was a clear day. You could see Malibu, the ocean. You could see the Hollywood sign. You could see the mountains, you know, out in San Bernardino, Long Beach. We're like, we need to preserve these views. And so we're kind of working through the process. 